Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? So you're blonde, I'm curly. We're like we're we're exploring our identity here in COVID. Look at us. Yeah, totally, totally. I feel like we we did the, the difficult identity exploration earlier on in our lives. <laughs> like we did the hard stuff, but now we're like, I wanna tell my blonde self. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Curious Fox Podcast. This podcast is for those who challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla, and on today's episode, Effie and I are exploring some themes that have been coming up in our work, specifically the caretaking dynamic that exists in relationships. And before we do, Effie and I are on Zoom, and I must acknowledge that Effie Blue, you are now blonde. (laughs) I am. I am blonde right now, and I keep forgetting that I'm blonde, and I keep catching myself either on Zoom or in a mirror. I'm like, ah, I'm blonde now. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, huge change. And your hair is short. It's cute. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, short is how I roll, so that's working for me. The blonde is relatively new. I've had highlights before, and I was like, okay. And then I went to the hairdresser's like first time in a long, long time. And I was like, I'm ready for a change. I'm considering something different. And he's like, leave it to me. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And then (laughs) two hours later, I'm blonde. (laughs) And um, I like it. I I like it. I just need to get used to it. Mm -hmm. I should post some pictures on my Instagram, which I don't do. But I keep promising that I'm going to post more on instagram i'm gonna post more on instagram i promise again for another episode <laughs> i will post my new blonde box i'll hold you accountable this friday when the podcast launches there will be a picture of effie and her blonde oh, hair me blonde yes i love that i love that i mean it's it's nice it's first of all it's nice to just be able to sort of do a bit of self-care and you know like decide decide on how i want to look rather than like, just wake up and look in the mirror. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is what I look like today. Um, so that's kind of nice. <laughs> um, so that's nice. And then, uh, yeah, just just change in a good way. Like, yeah. getting used to the change. I love yeah. it. I so, love it. Yeah. It's like when you decided to go, go curly. I know. I have been... I've had my hair. I was going to say I've been straight for a long time. And then I was like, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) My hair has been, and actually my hair has not been straight. That's also lies. I've been blowing, blowing my hair out for a very long time. I mean, when my hair was, when I was younger, my hair was straight. And at some point it became curly and I didn't realize how curly it was mm-hmm. until I like went to a curly hair salon over, you know, months into COVID because I just was like, this is too, COVID is too hard for me to blow dry my hair. Like nobody has time for that and COVID at the same time. So like <laughs> we need to now choose, like no one has time for virtual schooling and, you know, all my calls being on Zoom. So I went curly and the same, I would like pass myself in the mirror and be like, huh? And like, it just, it took me a while to get used to it, how to style it. I miss my straight hair sometimes. I don't miss the work of it. 
but I miss, yeah. I miss it. So, but I, I, I love embracing, embracing the curly. I love sure. that you're embracing your short and curly. Yeah. Yeah. My curls, I had straight hair until I hit puberty. I, when I had my period for the first time, mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, my period. Whoa, what's going on? And then, um, and your body went into shock and like you curled your hair up. <laughs> actually, it's pretty like that's, that's almost what happened. <laughs> I was kind of trying to figure out my, my, uh, my period. And I had these like curls in the back of my neck, two pieces yeah. of hair in the back of my neck, just behind my ear, just went like wavy. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's weird. Cause I had dead straight hair. Yeah. And then I was like, mom, look, I have curly hair. And she was like, stop it. Stop playing with your hair. Like typical my mom. So I was like, cool. And then um, I went to bed and over the course of the next three days during my period, when my hair went from straight to curly. No way. Totally. No lie. No lie. And um, I don't know what shocked me more, my period or my curly hair. (laughs) I haven't looked back. I mean, it's just been curly. I mean, my mom has that straight hair and my dad has curly hair. So I think it's in my genes. It's just like puberty just expressed whatever that was in my genes i went from straight to curly and i've been curly ever since that's that fascinating crazy? that is crazy yeah that's so interesting i wonder because i i was gonna say i definitely had straight hair at not like pin straight but i had straight hair as a as a kid i didn't have curly hair like this so yeah. something happened over the course of so maybe like but i was masking it see this is all my life was has been masking all of the things <laughs> that were not straight for years and then exactly. so i don't even know when it became curly yeah wow. yeah i mean I, there are stories of people their hair texts are changing when they were they're pregnant so people get yeah. you know their like curls full fall out and go straight or they got straight hand they go curly i think some of it is hormonal i think that's why it happened to me during puberty mm-hmm. i think it felt a lot like this coming out of the um cocoon type you know puberty mm-hmm. like next next phase of your life t- thing and then then very much you look at all the pictures like straight hair now she has curly hair. So yeah, that's my curly hair adventures. And now it's curly and blonde. That's, that's how I'm rolling amazing. right now. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I want to get highlights again. But then I'm also like, uh, maintenance. Like everything right now is like, uh, maintenance. Yeah, I <laughs> like I just I started to get my nails done. Like after a hundred months of not and they look so nice now it makes me so happy but now Mm. i have to keep going back i feel the same yeah (laughs) i liked it when you had blue hat that was good yeah it didn't last for that long though it just looked dark i didn't want to bleach it and then dye it because again i'm Mm. like uh maintenance (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) it's just adding stuff just like more things to take care of I know, I know. And I do, I like take care of myself. Like I put makeup, I'm one of those folks, like you said in the in the beginning when you're like, oh, well, I guess this is what I look like. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> even sometimes after I do the whole thing, the hair and the makeup and I'm just like, well, I guess that's what I look like today. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's the best I can muster. Let, let's, let's get the day going. I don't know. I like it when you and I catch up over your makeup routine. Sometimes when we have our morning calls and you're like, I just need to do my makeup while I'm talking to you. I'm like, sure. And it's like watching a live YouTube makeup tutorial. (laughs) And you go from like bare face to like fully made up in front of my eyes. It's like some sorcery that's happening. (laughs) Both trying to like stay on topic and at the same time like transfixed. Like what? What's just happening? So I don't know. I like those sessions. They're fun. Yeah, I do. Often I'll put on makeup. There's I don't even have meetings or anything that particular day. I just do it for me because it feels like at some point I really like loathed all of the things that I was doing in like my femme identity. Like every time I was blow drying my hair, every time I was putting makeup on, I was just like 
angry, particularly because my two partners are in, both androgynous. And so I was like, how you both have short hair and no makeup and you just throw on a t-shirt and jeans. And like, certainly I could do all those things myself, but the way in which I present to the world and how I like feel really good to take some amount of, you know, grooming and effort in a way that they didn't need to do and, or didn't feel like they needed to do. And I was like really mad about it. Like every time mm-hmm. I would be like cursing the femme gods and then I really revisited it and realized that I had not made time for myself to do meditation. Mm. And part of my not being able to do meditation or not making that time was because I was running in the morning and showering and then, you know, doing the makeup and the hair and all those things. And I decided to include and incorporate meditation into my makeup routine so that Mm. as I was putting on makeup, I was really just being mindful and present around how things felt, or I was saying positive affirmations to myself or thinking about my intentions for the day. And so I switched that time in the morning to really just be about me and Mm. my like kind of grooming routine in the morning to be about taking care of and spending time with me. And then that really shifted it. And now I do it whether or not anyone else is going to see me because it's about me. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. I used to do makeup and hair and and I think it's just shifted for me I don't necessarily I mean I struggle with all the things like I struggle with like the extreme end of it like when you put false lashes on or false nails anything that feels like not part of me I feel it and I'm mm-hmm. I'm like I feel like I'm either fiddling with it or rejecting it or or you know like if I have like a ton of mascara on I'm just like ah I can feel the things on my skin uh-huh. so I I kind of try not to I mean, I don't enjoy it. Um, I well, like when I when I'm getting ready for things. It's nice to put makeup on, mm-hmm. but I, yeah. I can feel it on my skin. Like I, yes. I, I feel the makeup on my skin. Yes, and then it just makes me uncomfortable. Yes, um, I don't know. It's just when we talked to Jessie Fresh and she was talking about being super sensitive and like feeling things on your skin, that kind of thing. It feels like that. I also feel like about clothes, mm-hmm. like certain textures. I'm just like, I don't like it against my skin. Like I can't yeah. wear this. Yeah. And same with, I think, with makeup. I'm just like, ugh, I can feel it on my skin. I don't want yeah. it. Yeah. No, I'm, that's happening for me right now. So I am terrible at washing my face at night. Mm-hmm. I will put makeup on and then depending on the day, we'll be just exhausted. And like, so that happened. So we are recording. It's the, it's the morning here in New York. It's evening and where you are. It's morning where I am. Mm-hmm. And I can feel yesterday's makeup still on my face. <laughs> but that will often happen also at the end of the day. Like after working a full day, I have to put my hair up in a ponytail and have to take my makeup off because now I suddenly feel everything on me. My yeah. skin feels just like it's radiating. And I'm like, I like immediately need to just wash everything off and take a shower mm-hmm. and put my hair up and like nothing can touch me yeah. so I'm feeling that now after this I'm yeah. gonna have to go wipe my face <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I hear you I hear you so you're blonde I'm curly we're like we're, we're exploring our identity here in COVID look at us yeah, totally totally I feel like we we did the, the difficult identity exploration earlier on in our lives <laughs> like we did the hard stuff and now we're like I want to turn my blonde self <laughs> <laughs> we came out as all the things that we could come out as and now we're just like <laughs> play with our hair well actually no well speaking of identity I've been thinking about this I've been mindful of not losing mine, frankly, Mm -hmm. because as a working parent in the midst of COVID, so I have an only child, as you know, I have a Mm nine-year-old daughter and I have had to be her teacher and her playmate and her chef and her nurse and her parent Mm -hmm. because she doesn't have anyone else to play with and she's in virtual school and like it's, it's hard and I feel really bad for her. She's wildly independent and also 
codependent at the same time. Like there, there are multiple <laughs> things that are happening in that space. But it reminds me of, you know, we've talked about this, Esther Perel has talked about this and, and written about this, but when you assume that a community could be wrapped up all in one person, mm-hmm. we do this in romantic relationships. We want someone to be, you know, our muse and our thought partner and our erotic playmate and our best friend and our, you know, intellectual equal. And, and that is how, what I'm experiencing right now as a parent. And I'm, and I am in the midst of trying to identify a tutor for her and like an, uh, like a therapist and like all these things so that she, I am not all these things for her. Cause right mm-hmm. now I am. And it has made me think about, you know, I often get praised for this. Like people see my effort and they're like, Ben, you're a wonder woman. Or like, you're so, even my daughter has been like, you're so selfless. Like I love how, and I have to be like, no, selfless Mm -hmm. means loss of self. I'm not losing myself. I care for you and I care about you. And I also prioritize myself. So I like reject those terms Mm-hmm. And, and embrace them. Like part of me, like this morning I woke up and made pancakes with like strawberries and whipped cream while I was like in mm-hmm. the hustle to like, and like, cause that made me joyful to serve my mm-hmm. family in that way. So there's, so there's like this conflicting, there's like cognitive dissonance in my mind between feeling resentful that I have to be everybody's everything, but mm-hmm. then also wanting to be everybody's everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I've just been thinking about that as relates to specifically my role as a mom. But yeah. Yeah. And I think the, piece about uh the way that you've handled being selfless with simone Mm -hmm. i think is super important because that is not the role model that you want to be you don't want her to be you don't want her to think that that she should be selfless in the world because that's not that's not a good yeah it's not a a healthy way to be it's important that she realizes that you're not being selfless right and that that is not the role of a mother or a woman and to to be in the world as a selfless human yes so I think it's I think the I think you've talked about this before as well which I totally get is like how do you be this how how do you be this like good mom that does all the things while role modeling you know having a sense of self and prioritizing right. yourself and yeah. you know like not losing your dreams and your hopes and and yeah. have boundaries and all that kind of stuff so it's it's a it's a tough one and the two things actually I think play into each other so for me, my polyamory is actually a part of my self-identity, not losing myself, self-care. So, you know, her, Simone's father and I are divorced. And so she splits her time in between the two homes. He also lives in the same neighborhood. And so I walk her over, you know, once a week, she stays there for a week, then he walks her over and she stays with me for a week. And so we switch on and off. And on the weeks that she's not with me, I'm with my other partner. And I have, you know, time that I spend there. And so even though I'm always a parent, I am not actively parenting during Mm. those weeks. And there are times where she'll say to me, hey, can I stay with you this week? Can we do some extra things? And I'll say, actually, this this week is for you and your dad to spend time together. Mm. And this week is for me to work mm-hmm. as long as I want, to spend time with my partner, to go on a, a you know, this weekend I'm going to be going to New Jersey with my wife and it'll just be the two of us. And that does feel like those conversations are really challenging because essentially I'm saying to her, I am prioritizing myself and my needs and my relationships with my partners over your request to spend more time with me. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I believe that when she is here with me, I overcompensate by pancakes and extra cuddles and let's and let me be your everything so there's a little bit of mom guilt that happens where because i really do craft and define out my identity and my space independent of motherhood that when i lean into motherhood i do it hard i lean all the way into motherhood yeah 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 i mean it all makes sense and i think 
in a way, I mean, no, you know, I, I think we say in our society, like, it's not a good thing to have a split home, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily a bad thing, especially because it gives people a break from parenting and, mm -hmm. and do, the, this, do what you've just described, which is to carve out some time on their own. You know, we were talking about this earlier. I love Justice Ginsburg's mm. quote that goes, women will have achieved true equality when men share share with them the responsibility of bringing up the next generation. Mm. I think that's such an important message. And I think, you know, in your situation, because you're divorced, that that kind of happens automatically. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important that that happens for people who are not divorced, you know, or or just whatever your your family structure looks like, I think it's important for for children to have time with with somebody while somebody else is taking a break or having some time to themselves or mm -hmm. getting to express whatever they need to express, be it you know work or hobbies or or social time or whatever it is to really sort of regroup, re you know reconnect with their own identity to then be able to serve their kids from that place rather than this like selfless mm -hmm. you know I am nothing unless I am you know in service to you or care to, you're take, taking care of you which is exactly what we're going to talk about today yeah no it's completely true it's completely true and let me say i do think that it's a good, good thing that she's with her dad part of the time because he shows up to the world very differently than i do i am you know the extreme overachiever and he's like let's just chill and relax and i think that vibe is good for her and i mm -hmm. think it requires her to have more responsibility i think as a result of that i still take on the role of like making sure that he knows what's in her school calendar for mm -hmm. even on his weeks and like so i overachieve on his behalf as well and need to be more mindful of that and because i single parent when she's with me i do feel this way i mean this quote really resonates right women can achieve true equality with men share with them the responsibility of bringing up the next generation and i don't think that that just means certainly men in partnership but when all of society recognizes that women are taking on the burden in, in most cases with their with child rearing and that there is a cost to pay in terms of our productivity in terms of our joy our sanity our identity. Our identity. Our identity. And exactly what you described. I mean, this has been coming up in a theme in our work where, particularly with women, I'm interested to, to hear if you're having this. I, there's one male client that I have that there's some conversations around service. But in most cases, it's the women who I'm talking to who are trying to navigate their socialization around serving their partner and the impact that that's actually having on their relationship, that it's feeding them to be of service, but then they are also finding themselves to be taking on like a mommy role or mm. a best friend role or a therapist role. And, and no one wants to sleep with their mom. Well, some people's kink is to sleep with their mom, but you know, we can talk about that as well because evolutionarily that's, that's not something that we are built to do. Regardless of what Freud says, um, yeah. most of yeah. us do not want to play, do not want to have sex with our mom um, and kill our dads. Yeah, so I'm interested. I, I have I have a few stories of some works that I'm doing with clients, and the conversations I'm having with clients have helped are resonating some things with me in my personal life that I'm thinking through. And you, I know, have been having some conversations with people in your life as well around service. And so interestingly enough, it's been coming up for both of us, and mm -hmm. we've been exploring it off off the microphone, if you will. And so yeah. we were like, if it's coming up for us, it's time to talk about it. For sure. Yeah. This actually sort of came up, uh, was like the seed was planted 
back when I don't really know, uh, a few months ago, Dr. Phil of all people, there was this quote that he said in an episode that was like all over my feed. It was like, Everybody was writing about it. And he'd said in an episode, 100 out of 100 relationships that involve caregiving fail. Hmm. And that was just a quote. I, had, I didn't watch the episode. I don't watch Dr. Phil. Um, shame on me. <laughs> um, but this quote, quote was all over my, all my feeds and everybody was up in arms. There was a lot of accusations of ableism. There was a lot of posting about their relationships. One person was um, disabled and, and the other person being taken care of them. And they were sort of saying how, you know, how they were happy and thriving and, and all that kind of stuff. And then I was just like, actually, I don't think that's what he means. I don't necessarily think he is like, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know him. I don't think he's like particularly wise or I don't take his word for anything. However, in this particular quote in this particular line um i was like he's not wrong because i don't think when he means caregiving in this context when he's like 100 out of 100 relationships that involve caregiving fail that caregiving he talks about and i then actually did look at the episode and i think this is this is what it was about i don't think he means somebody helping somebody else out of a bed to get into a wheelchair or or somebody you know helping somebody bathe um, because they have some sort of a physical disability. It's not that kind of caregiving. I think what he's talking about is the caregiving that is about competence, that's about self-reliance, that's about self-soothing and, and being self-sufficient in the world and being whole, right? I think what, he's, what he means that if you come into a relationship where you are not competent around life and when you are not able to regulate your emotions and when you can't get to a place where you feel safe and grounded and you need the other person and and to, to do that for you because you're you're incapable of it and then the other person kind of takes takes that role on as like a caregiver beyond anything else right and there's becomes and you know and the dynamic that we recognize is is codependency mm. when you are dependent on the other person to shape your identity to be a part of you and part of your identity and without them you feel there's a part of you that's missing that you're not fully self-expressed that you're not whole in the world mm. i think that's the caretaking that he's talking about in this particular quote and he's kind of right that when when the relationship becomes all about caregiving and nothing else I think that's when the relationship fails. And we, of course, need to talk about what we mean by fail. Right. Right. Because I think in what you're describing, what I hear fail is, is essentially that there's not a peer dynamic mm -hmm. and equity in, in the relationship, but also it feels like a lack of eroticism. Sure. That, again, one doesn't necessarily want to sleep with their caregiver. Right. So I think what happens is in those caregiving dynamics, and I know we're going to sort of delve into it and you have some interesting stories that we can really kind of look at this in, in, in real time. The thing I think what happens with caregiving is that especially when you slip into that caregiving that feels almost parental, right? Because there's an incompetence, like if you're caregiving due to incompetence, there is a power dynamic inherently built in. And because that power dynamic then gets played out in caregiving and caretaking, then it has an air, a flavor, a real dynamic of parental mm -hmm. dynamics. 
and that parental dynamic is not where the erotic lives. It's not meant to live there. We obviously we think incest is bad. You know, we have a moral objection to incest. In fact, we have a biological objection to incest, more importantly than moral one, that we need it for the, the gene pool, we need it for the for a healthy species. That's one of the reasons like biological is biologically reinforced not to fancy our parents. Mm-hmm. Right. So when the our romantic relationship has an echo of a parental relationship or maybe even echoes our the the parental relationship we had with our with our own parents because we haven't resolved some of these issues eroticism will just fade away because that's not where it lives like it can't it can't live in that parental space because we're not we're not meant to fancy our parents yeah i think that i want to be mindful of there's a few things that we're talking about at once so certainly we don't want to kink shame so those who actually mm. enjoy the dynamic between kind of introducing either infantilization or introducing the mom dad dynamic into their play and we and we can talk all about actually calling people mommy and papi and daddy i think we should definitely cover daddy that's it's been on my mind for a long time so we can talk about the all the names that we call people within relationships that are both about that are both parental but also sexy and so i want to explore that so certainly we, it's not about kink shaming it's about understanding that in many relationships when the caretaking aspect enters into a relationship that oftentimes the desire and eroticism then can leave that space because it's hard for those two things to, to your point, to live in that same space. And I've been thinking about that in my relationship. So with my partner, there are moments where we do have playful banter around like, you know, I'll come out and I'll be cold, for example. And she's like, oh, the baby is so cold. And she'll like throw like a gigantic (laughs) blanket around me and she'll be like, you're so little, the baby is freezing, like wrap her up. And it's like cute and sweet. Now that doesn't turn into then like sex. Like those are two different, like that in those moments, I feel like scooped up almost and Mm -hmm. like embraced and taken care of in a way that helps me feel loved and like, Mm -hmm. and playful. It feels like loving and playful and sweet. It's not then sexy. That's like a different Mm -hmm. type of vibe. Mm -hmm. And I have been thoughtful about that in, in our conversations around this dynamic like is that is that something i should be concerned about like am i is she playing the role of mom or dad that i didn't have as a young person and maybe that's true because i i think that actually i want to there's some things mm-hmm. to explore there too that doesn't feel dangerous to me that doesn't necessarily feel uncomfortable that feels sweet and loving and playful and i think that is also different so i want to make sure that we're we're separating out the pieces of conversation that it's not kink shaming nor is it saying that anytime we are being playful or loving with our partners in a way that like, you know, calls them a baby or, you know, mm. takes care of them in a loving kind of sweet, mm. gentle way. I don't know if those things for me personally, those things don't feel necessarily wrong. I think that when it becomes mixed into your identity in partnership, then there can mm-hmm. definitely be some challenges that are there. Totally. I think the big distinction is intention. Mm. I think if you're intentionally, definitely in kink, if you're intentionally going to that place and looking for eroticism and, and, and arousal in those places with an intentional sort of, you know, playing into those dynamics and with, you know, safe, sane and consensual, 
uh, of all you know adult parties and you're playing around infantilization um you're having sort of daddy baby girl dynamics mm-hmm. i think with intention from a wise place for a wise mind adult place go for it like i don't think this is what you know i appreciate that you make that distinction because i that's definitely not what we're talking about here mm-hmm. i think when and and similarly this kind of cutesy like momentary Mm-hmm. playful mini regression and then sort of you know coming back into like the mm-hmm. real dynamics or or like restoring sort of peer dynamics mm-hmm. or, or i should say maybe having those cute moments lying on top of essentially peer dynamics mm-hmm. right i think that's that's again different that's we're not talking about that either it's when it is unintentional yes almost unconscious Mm-hmm. somewhat stuck in its own way without any kind of variation where people feel that it's their duty yes. to, to take care of their partner or they feel that's the only way they're able to show up in a relationship. That's the mm-hmm. only way they are worthy of a relationship. They're the only way they're worthy of their partner. Yes. That they, they, they only exist in the world and in their relationships in service and not just because they are or they are chosen by their partner. I think that's kind of when we're, that is when I think, one, that's what we're talking about. And two, I think that's what Dr. Phil is saying about 100% of those, 100 out of 100 of those relationships fail. Yes. I think it's important to make that distinction. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working with a client right now on establishing healthier relationship dynamics that are not rooted in taking care of or serving her partner. And the conversations that I'm having with her and that struggle actually resonates with me because it highlights the struggle that I think many overachievers have, which is that we feel valued when we are doing and have a hard time just being. And so just simply being loved for existing as an overachiever Mm -hmm. is challenging and instead feel like I need to take care of you to prove my value in this relationship Mm -hmm. and to be rewarded then with your love. That that is the exchange that we are making. And that is cultural. That is from upbringing. Again, I think that's a huge additional pressure that women in our societies have. I remember in an episode that we did with Carolyn around um, having conversations with your partner about opening up. We talked through this story of that when I was growing up, I learned via the role modeling of my grandmother and my mother that you serve your partner first and that you serve them the best portions. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I was actually surprised that I brought into my same sex relationships that mm-hmm. I thought that that was a gendered role and that when I was with and married to men, that when that dynamic existed, I thought, oh, well, that's because it's the male-female dynamic. And when I found myself serving my wife first and the biggest portions, I was like, oh, this is much deeper than that. Mm. And what blew my mind is when Carolyn said that in her household, the women served themselves first and ate first and Mm. then invited people over to go serve themselves and get food. And I was like, <laughs> what that is this world? Like that <laughs> blew my mind, blew my mind. And I think it also, there's a dynamic or, or there was this idea in my mind that the person who earns less does more around the house. Which is more often than not women. women. Right. And now what's interesting is when I was married to my daughter's father, 
he was he was a filmmaker and an editor and he did consulting work and so he often either was not working as much or not working at all and he took care of our child and he cooked and he cleaned and i you know went out and and worked and and was the provider with the financial provider within the home and so the dynamic didn't necessarily matter for me there in terms of gender but that did exist that i expected without conversation that he would take care of whole household things and then when I became the person who wasn't earning as much and my wife earned more, even though I was working as much as her, because my paycheck was smaller than hers, I took on the cooking and the cleaning and the securing of the groceries and things mm -hmm. like that. And then within my relationship with my partner, she earns less. And so I expect her to do that. So it's just these weird narratives that have been that I'm beginning now to un untangle and unpack mm -hmm. that I didn't even realize, but a lot of them have to do with service. Then in order mm -hmm. for you to earn your keep, you have to serve. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that's definitely one aspect of how this plays out. So let me put it this way. Uh, this came up the other day that I was talking to somebody here that a, a woman's worth is measured, especially where I am right now, woman's worth is measured by the quality of the ironing of her husband's shirt, mm. essentially. Like how well she's taking off her cake and taking care of her husband, how well she's taking care of her of her house, how delicious her food is, mm. how well the kids are behaved, more mm. importantly, mm -hmm. how well the kids are dressed. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is the worth. That's how the worth of a woman is measured. And it still is in, in a lot of in a lot of societies. That's kind of it's more important than what she does, but how she takes care of the people around her, which is what you're saying, like say, serving others first and, mm -hmm. and, you know, making sure that she's selfless and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's on like a systemic societal level. Like that's what we tell, what we, you know, we tell women. And I think mm -hmm. on top of that, in your particular case and you're an overachiever so you're not going to mess around like you've already <laughs> internalized those you already internalized those like jobs mm -hmm. as like as if, as if you know woman's role because i mean you come from a heteronormative mm -hmm. household right mm -hmm. hispanic religious hispanic heteronormative. religious right exactly so that's very much in your culture like woman's role mm -hmm. is to be the caretaker so you've already internalized this the systemic side of it and plus you know, you're Jackie and, you know, and you're like, well, if that's my job, right. let me, let if me I'm show do you it, which I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, anything in your case is just like doubly, you know, yeah. like, like a double whammy for sure. Yeah. I think the other piece of it is that's definitely one expression of that caretaking. And I think the other is around fawning. Which mm -hmm. is a different version of that, right? Yes. So we talk about which knows no gender, probably, or no gender identity. I'm sure that maybe it's reinforced with women, but certainly I've had male clients that I work with who also, f because of the dynamic of when they were growing, the way that they observed their parents' exchange growing up, or the way that they value themselves, have slipped into fawning. For sure, and also women tend to fawn more purely out of strength like physical strength, mm. right? A woman is less likely to fight her way out of a situation. I should say, let's get this right. Mm -hmm. Somebody with a femme body mm -hmm. on an average build mm -hmm. is less likely to fight their way out, physically fight their way out of a situation unless they absolutely have to. They're more likely to fawn or flight, mm -hmm. right? Um, or freeze. Mm -hmm. I think that's just biology, to be honest. 
when confronted with a challenge or something that's perceived as a danger, we've heard fight, flight, and freeze as being our responses. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast is that there's also the addition of fawn, Mm -hmm. which is to... I think you could probably, I could define it in the way that I have done it. (laughs) I think you should define it like technically what it is. And then I could be like, and this is what it looks like for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the layman's term is people pleasing. It's like Mm. de-escalating and people pleasing at all costs. Like it's not de-escalating in that kind of like advanced negotiation, conflict resolution, de-escalation. Like I'm I'm not talking about that kind of de-escalation. I'm talking about de-escalation at any cost. And that Mm -hmm. cost could be your own sanity, your own boundaries, your own desires, like just de-escalating at all cost um, is what fawning is. Yeah. And I, and again, I think what that has looked like for me based on the role modeling again of my mom, for example, was being like, everything's okay. It's okay. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. You're great. We're great. Like, let's just Mm -hmm. eat something. Let's Mm -hmm. like going over and like, even if you're physically repelled by someone and their behavior, you go over and you're gentle and soft with them. Mm -hmm. It means lowering your voice so that the tone and the the volume in the room can go down. Mm -hmm. It means both role modeling, but almost in a way of diminishing yourself and the problem. So is so mm-hmm. to de-escalate the issue and sweep right. it under the rug so that you could survive those next moments. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And if that is a part of your relationship dynamic, mm-hmm. when you're in, you know, spending a lot of time in that phone place that you're constantly appeasing the other person and in return, you kind of slowly, you know, erasing yourself out of the dynamic or if you kind of eroding yourself out of the dynamic and you're just kind of just sort of people pleasing all the time you know that also is going to struggle with you know cause struggle within the relationship again that is a fear response and the erotic doesn't live in the fear either right we're not most of the time when we're in fight flight freeze or fawn we're not also in the erotic you know most of the time right Mm -hmm. again we're not kink shaming. Mm-hmm. We're not, but just biologically, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, that when we're in those like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn moments, we're also not being sexual. We're not being. We can mm-hmm. be aroused, right? That's something different. Like we can be aroused, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the erotic space, yes. right? That you're not feeling sexy. And again, to to have a, a kink scene where there is intentional power dynamic or struggle or role play, that is something Mm. very different than actually being afraid. And so we want to continue to separate those things out around parental dynamics, because every time I log into Pornhub, I see that they're like the most popular things are like stepmom and stepdad things. So there's clearly a, even though we're talking about parental dynamics, there's clearly a, as close to we could get to as a parent fantasizing as possible. That is again, very different than what we're describing, which is something that is not intentional, something that is insidious, something Mm -hmm. that is rooted in your culture, your upbringing, your childhood, your trauma that is mm-hmm. playing itself out in relationship. Right. And to your point, I think that there is a trauma connection, a shared trauma connection that can happen mm-hmm. when two mm-hmm. people have experienced trauma or more, you know, folks within the relationship dynamics, when they've experienced trauma and their younger selves are connecting with that. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. like the two children are meeting rooted in the fact that they experienced fear 
And there mm-hmm. could be either a bonding around their scared younger selves mm-hmm. finding safety in each other or their younger selves role playing out things from their childhood mm-hmm. to try to heal those things in their adulthood. And personally, I think that there could be something that's healing in that when you are mindful of that. Well, there's a whole therapy modality called imago therapy, which is a type of couples therapy that is very much about healing one another. Like it's very intentional um, therapy that is two people embark on to heal each other and each other's childhood wounds and, and whatever they're working on. So I think, again, with intention, with support, with, you know, wisdom, um, you can absolutely have those dynamics be healing. I think when it's unconscious and you're in the drift and you're essentially code. I mean, I think mm-hmm. when you distill all that down to what you're dealing with codependency mm-hmm. and when you're in, in that codependent dynamic whether it's whether it's playing out as a parental role whether it's you know it's, it's um, playing out as this like caregiver caretaker role those are not spaces where the erotic thrives i should say mm. and i think whether it's because i mean more often than not people end up in codependent relationships because they have untreated unhealed trauma and they're trying to, they have come to see the other person as the one and only source of healing and safety and security and, you know, identity. And therefore, they and they become dependent on that person and in exactly the same way that a child is truly and literally dependent on a caregiver, mm-hmm. right? Really, the only time we are truly and literally dependent on a, a person is when we're children, when we can't fend for ourselves and we can't choose that person, right? So I'm not talking, again, I don't want to seem like, I don't want to sort of, it's, this is not an ableist statement. Like if you're, an, if you're an adult and you need you need to be taken care of physically or whatever and you get to choose that person and then they, you know, that's the dynamic they have. That's not what I'm talking about. As children, we are truly dependent on a person that we don't get to choose, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's whoever a caregiver is. If you're in the system, it's your foster parent. Whoever is assigned to take care of you is mm-hmm. the person that, that you get to have. And I think a codependent relationship is, is playing out that dynamic that you feel that your partner is the only person mm-hmm. that you can rely on to take care of you and to, free, to be your source of safety and security. Yes. And and that's it. That's what a codependent relationship is. Yeah. And in those dynamics, it just erotic doesn't. That's just not where the erotic lives. And that's where you find yourself minimizing your identity in mm-hmm. order to maintain that relationship. That if I believe that without you, I will not be loved. I will not be safe. Mm-hmm. I will not be taken care of. I will not be in mm-hmm. partnership. Then I will de-escalate our arguments by giving away pieces of mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Then I will show up as taking care of you and meeting all of your needs. Mm-hmm. And in some of the, the, the conversations I'm having with clients, when a partner sees the other person as their mother, as their nurse, as their therapist, mm-hmm. in the beginning, there is something that's comforting about that, right? Mm-hmm. There's something that it's like, wow, I could be vulnerable with you and you love me potentially in a way that I haven't been loved before. And there can be intimacy as a result of that. And in what I'm hearing is that over time, and certainly what even what I've experienced, that then doesn't become attractive anymore. The place where I am dumping all of my insecurity and my vulnerability and my needs, and you're cleaning that up, that's not the space I want to come to to be sexy. 
so here's the thing that can be a part of the relationship, right. but they can't be the relationship, right. right? They can be pockets, you know, they could be Absolutely. agreed upon periods. We talked about this earlier. Let's say somebody has an accident, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody needs to be physically taken care of, or someone's like overloaded at work and the other mm-hmm. person has to take up some extra duties or like, they can be, you know, someone's going through a period of depression. So mm-hmm. they need like mental health support at home. So maybe there is pockets and periods and and moments when people step into those roles and comfortably step out without destroying the other person or the other person feeling destroyed. I think that's okay. But when it becomes, when that dynamic becomes the dynamic, when that, that relationship becomes the relationship where the caretaking happens, I think that's where the struggle is. Yeah. And they they could transition into dynamics that are platonic and non-sexual, and that's also fine. I think that in those relationships, so if somebody is not engaged sexually with their partner, which there are plenty of relationships with that exist and, and they're thriving there. It's recognizing whether that still feels safe, where the, there's resentment that's building up, where you're mm-hmm. giving and giving and giving, but you're not getting in return what you are giving. And I've also heard this a lot where people give and give and give as a signal to their partner, this is what I want to receive in return. Mm-hmm. But that conversation has never happened. And as a result of that resentment builds, that has nothing to do with sex. And that yet that's still unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So I want to also make sure that we're not anchoring our conversation in, if you want to have sex with your partner, these are things to think about. It's if you Mm -hmm. want to have a healthy, robust, peer kind of relationship with a partner, Mm -hmm. then these are things to keep in mind is, are you replaying things from your childhood within your current dynamic? Mm -hmm. Are you finding that your value is tied into service and tied into doing? Mm -hmm. Are you finding that there are power dynamics that exist that either were you didn't realize that you were signing up for or that you unknowingly yet willingly signed up for? And those Mm -hmm. power dynamics are creating either moments where you feel like you are losing yourself or you are feeling Mm -hmm. resentful. Those are all signs that you may need to revisit what's happening mm-hmm. in your relationship and see if you can course correct and you can create a more balanced dynamic. Absolutely. And I think I want to add to that list. If you are restricting yourself, not sharing the things that you desire, not sharing mm-hmm. the things that you're curious about mm-hmm. because you're upset that you're going to set the dynamics of mm-hmm. your relationship, you have either a v- real sense of or maybe a voice in the back of your head or maybe like a pit in your stomach that says, what if that person leaves me? Like mm-hmm. those are clues. Mm-hmm. If you have a sense that if I just share this one thing, this person is going to slam the door and leave me, right? Mm-hmm. Two things. One, if that's really the case, like something is much bigger, like wrong with the relationship, if the person upon sharing this one thing, if um, this person is going to like slam the door and leave you, there's way, way deeper issues. And two, if that's how you feel, which means you don't have a, self, a sense of safety within the relationship, again, if you're restricting yourself in that kind of way, that's also a sign that you might be in a codependent relationship. And again, you might find that the erotic doesn't live there. I would even say maybe the sex that you're having is um, sex out of service mm-hmm. rather than sex out of pleasure. Right. And again, I am not that against sex out of service. Mm-hmm. I've definitely been there. Again, it's been in pockets. It's been here and there. It's been like, okay, fine. Like, I like sex. 
I might not be in the mood for it right now, but I see that you are for whatever reason. Sure, I'll show up and have sex with you. That's fine. Like, but if that's the only sex that you're having, the only time you're having sex, or the, the every time you're having sex, you're doing it in service of the other person, making making sure that they have pleasure, and you may mm-hmm. may even not want to do that. Like, those are all signs mm-hmm. that there might be something not quite right. Let's talk a little bit about some strategies. I want to, I can share out some of the things that I'm working with, with my clients and I'm interested in some of the work that you've been doing. So if, if you've heard this checklist and you're like, uh, yes, <laughs> that, that mm-hmm. is me. Number one, that's okay. That has been mm-hmm. me. Like I'm raising my hand right yes. now on this Zoom yes, call. Sure. That not only am I even saying that has been me in some distant past, those mm-hmm. are some things that I am conscious of now. Mm-hmm. This idea of shared trauma connection, which we should note is different than trauma bonding. And and mm-hmm. we have actually had to be mindful not to confuse those two. Trauma bonding mm-hmm. is bonding with the person who is essentially creating the trauma for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who is potentially abusive and bonding mm-hmm. with that person. That's like Stockholm syndrome. Mm, yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's trauma bonding. What we're talking about is bonding over shared traumatic experiences mm-hmm. as, as young people. And so, for example, both my partner and I experienced dynamics in the home where our fathers were emotionally or physically abusive and there was constant tension within the home. And we both dealt with that tension very differently. I think that she dealt with it by going insular, going inside and really thinking about what do I need to do in this moment to protect myself and to be safe in this space. And I dealt with it by strategizing, by thinking 10 steps ahead to prevent that dynamic from happening. I also am the oldest of three. And so I was very mindful of what do we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that very much shows up in our adult selves, right? I am a strategist. and My job is to think 10 steps ahead and to avoid, avoid chaos and issues. And that has shown up in our dynamic in our relationship, where if anger shows up present in that space, we both revert to our 10-year-old selves, where I'm like planning desperately, how are we going to get out of this? And she completely shuts down. And in those moments, we're realizing, oh, our 10-year-old selves are in relationship with each other. There are mm-hmm. two 10-year-olds who are playing girlfriends right now. And mm-hmm. how do we get out of that mental space, that emotional space in order to show up as our adult selves again? And mm-hmm. so in that spirit, if you've heard that and you're thinking, yeah, that's me, I, I do that. Here's some things that I have recommended out and that I've done myself. And I'm interested, Effie, in, in your thoughts as well. One is um, I recently asked a client to carry around some post-its, two different color post-its. And every time that they thought of something for themselves that they wanted in their lives that felt like just for them, felt like hope, mm-hmm. to write that down. And immediately when the voice in their head said, that's not for you, that's crazy. You could never do that. That's Write that down on a different color post-it. Mm-hmm. Capture the hope, capture the idea for yourself, and then capture the voice in your head that is telling you no and shutting it down. And then by the end, she brought both sets of post-its to mm-hmm. our conversation and was able to see some themes that she was visioning out things that were only for herself. But because she had such a history of, it can't be about me, it has to be about the other person, immediately with the, the idea of hope or dreaming came the shutting down. That is not meant for you. That's meant for the people mm-hmm. you're supporting, but that's not meant for you. And we were able to break down those themes and those dynamics. But the first piece was just capturing it capturing the mm-hmm. message that she was hearing in her head. So that was, that's one idea. And the, the other is this thought of 
which goes to the first, I asked the same person to start to give herself more space to really sit in what she wants, give herself mm-hmm. like the permission slip to mm-hmm. dream about what is just for her, not in service to anybody else. What do you want? And to write those things down. And what she realized was her brain again was shutting it down because it was saying, well, you could never do that. Look at your history. Look at the way you show up in relationship. You can never achieve that. And the truth was that she was creating some boundaries and she has been doing some things for herself. And so the second list that I asked her to create was every time you do do it, every time you create a boundary, every time you say no, every time you show up for yourself, write that down because part of the work is convincing your brain that that future is possible for yourself. That you are not destined to this past that you have created for yourself, that there is a different future that can exist. And so just start to make that list of all the times that you're doing it so that you can start to show up, show your brain like, no, 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 this is possible. That's possible for me. Yeah. Like reprogramming your brain essentially to what you want and reprogramming your brain to see when you, the examples of when you can achieve it. For sure. Yeah. I love those. And I think that that, if you find that there's a dynamic of service in your relationship in a way that doesn't feel comfortable or healthy for you, and you find that you are doing that because that is how you believe that you are showing love, right? That I have no value anymore if I'm not cooking and know how to do all the things around the house or being your emotional caretaker and, and making sure that I'm the one who you can be conf- you know, vulnerable with and tell all your things to. If I can't, if, if you feel like you have to be everything for that person, it may be a slow journey for you to get out of that right? You're not going to show up and be like, I just listened to a podcast. You're on your own. Figure out dinner yourself. Like I'm going out with my friends. Right. Exactly. That's likely not going to happen because that's not where you're, you find your value wrapped up in. I think it's about beginning to untangle yourself from, I am only valuable when I am doing and serving Mm -hmm. and finding your value to be in other things within your relationship. Can you build out other spaces where you feel loved and cared for? Can you create more autonomy? I remember the moment when when I started to spend more time with my partner. So in the beginning of my relationship with my partner, and I was leaving my home with my wife longer for longer periods of time. And she would text me throughout the week and be like, where's the this? Like, where's the potato peeler? And where do we keep the this? And where do we keep? And she realized she ate number one. She felt really frustrated. She was like, I don't even know how to navigate my own home Mm -hmm. and kitchen because I had been doing all that for her. And she was like, I want to be more autonomous in this space. Mm -hmm. And when she became more autonomous in the space, actually I started to feel a little bad because Mm -hmm. she was able to like caretake for herself in a, in a way that didn't need me anymore. And I Mm -hmm. recognized that that started to make me feel uncomfortable. And I had to sit Mm -hmm. with that and be like, what's up with that? That she can make a meal on her own. And you feel bad about that. Like Mm -hmm. your marriage and love is not dependent on the fact that you are the only one who can feed her. (laughs) Now that she can feed herself, she's going to be like, well, frankly, I realize I don't need you anymore. (laughs) Now that I know (laughs) how to petite peel (laughs) my, my own potatoes. This marriage is over. (laughs) Please, walk yourself out. Right, exactly. Um, I've been holding on to you all this time because I didn't know how to cook. Now that she knew how to do those things, it didn't mean, it meant that there was more room for us to do other things together. That I Mm -hmm. wasn't, because she wasn't relying on me for those things, that our relationship could spend time in other spaces and places. So think about where those types of transitions can exist. Think about places where you can intentionally create space to reflect on your childhood 
a way that's healthy. <laughs> mm-hmm, for sure. I, as opposed to being, you know, with my partner, our 10-year-old selves who are both traumatized and, you know, dealing with still as adults, figuring out how to navigate the fear of these fathers that actually no longer live with us. That instead we reminisce about things that we loved as children. And so one example is I used to eat toaster strudels. And one day I came home uh, to our, our shared apartment and she had brought toaster strudels. And I had not had one in 20 years, 30 years, something like that. And it was like the best kind of childhood reminiscing. Like we like sat in bed and ate toaster strudels and talked about the cartoons that we watched as kids. And that felt like a really fun way of bonding as 10 year olds and not the traumatized bonding that, you know, could happen when triggered via because of, a, of an argument. Mm-hmm. So creating those types of healthy spaces for childhood bonding, I mm-hmm. think was it was important for us to recognize, like, let's do that. And instead of the type of childhood bonding that was happening as a result of conflict. So again, figure out ways to do, be fun about it, figure out ways to be thoughtful about it. But I think that the whole point of this conversation is just intentionality. Absolutely. Know what you're doing, know how you're doing it, be thoughtful about it. And if it doesn't feel good for you anymore, think about how to stop. Right. I think that's really important. I think that would be my my final uh, recommendation is to mindfulness is a practice you know and it comes up in all these places and a part of it is to be able to check in with yourself and check in with where you're at and how you're feeling and I think sometimes it just seems like a really simple thing like how am I feeling I think a lot of the times we tolerate these these situations because honestly we're not that aware of them like we have somehow you know been pushing through making it happen, you know, tolerating it, thinking that we don't have a choice. A lot of the time I hear people say things like, I have to, you know, I don't have a choice. And it's like, it's, it's, that's not the case. It's just that we've either checked out of ourselves, abandoned ourselves. We yeah. haven't really checked in for a long time and we are just pushing forward, pushing on. Yeah. And I think it's really important to find spaces where you check in with yourself something that i do so currently i'm um i'm I'm in a muslim country and um there are five times called prayer that happens every day um starts at dawn and finishes um and it's throughout the day and then you get one sort of past dusk around dusk so five times a day there's a call to prayer and the idea is that you go to the mosque and or wherever you are you pray um i don't have a religious practice so what i have been using it for as a as a cue to check in with myself so when i hear the call to prayer i go how am i feeling right now right now in this moment it doesn't have to be big huge existential how am i feeling what is my emotional state overall but like in this very moment how am i feeling when I was back in the States, um, there was no call to prayer. I had an app on my phone that asked me three times a day, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And gave me um, like emojis to pick mm-hmm. from. And I used to check that. And I think that was that was a really good practice. Whatever works for you, just get into a habit of checking in with yourself. Like mm-hmm. find that emotional language. Be it emo- If emojis work for you, great. If post-its, post-its work for you, great. 
whatever you need, um, whatever practice, whatever model you need, find a way to check in with yourself and do it regularly. Mm-hmm. And if you're finding that you're regularly dissatisfied, you're de- regularly feeling unsafe, you're regularly find yourself in your sort of your child self scared is aware, ch- you know, in a way that a child is scared where they feel hopeless and they can't problem solve and they think the one and only solution to their their agony, their frustration, or their you know discomfort is the one person. That's when you need to do some work. Mm-hmm. But you can't do any of that work. You can't do any of these things that we just talked about if you're not able to check in with yourself. If you're not able to get to that awareness. So I would say that would be my other practical sort it. of pro tip. I love it. I love it because mm-hmm. it's about disruption. Right. Disrupting the unhealthy dynamics, creating moments in your day for pause and being intentional about it, which I think is is everything that we talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love it. I love it. And, you know, all of this falls under the bucket of just continuing to change the noise, understanding Mm. that there's been so much noise that we were immersed into, bathed into, that has rained over us to the point that we don't realize that we are wet anymore with all of this noise. Mm. And if we can be intentional about changing the channel, disrupting some of that noise, creating spaces of quiet and listening into other things. And we hope that we're doing that in this podcast. Yeah. If you feel like we have, then please like it, share it, review it. This is actually not us being needy or <laughs> or, or being bit. like in service to you. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Yeah. But we are, we actually do not utilize social media that much. Um, and because likes and follows are not a thing that matters to us, like in our, in our personal lives. And in terms of this work, it does matter to us. Sharing the message and sharing it out and, and having reviews so that this way it can go to the top of the algorithm. That is important to us. So mm-hmm. do that. Join the community, join the conversation that's happening in the Facebook group. Join our Curious Fox Instagram, which actually is more active than our personal Instagram. (laughs) Join those two so you can find We Are Curious Foxes or you can find Effie Blue at Coach Effie Blue. Um, Maybe she'll post a picture of her blonde hair. I'll try to get one posted. I'm like Mm -hmm. talking just to the audience now of Curious Fox. I'll try to get one of her to post it on the Curious Fox (laughs) as well. Follow me (laughs) at Jacqueline Misla and you can see all of my curly hair glory at my, my Instagram. You can see the evolution from straight to curly hair at Jacqueline Missa. So you can find us on social media. You can go to Facebook and join the group so you can be a part of this conversation and plug into community that can support you with all these things. If there are conversations that you'd like us to be having on this podcast, you can email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com or call us, share a story, share a question. We'd love to be able to play it on the podcast and, and share our answers. And you can give us a call at 201-870-0063. Uh, we actually want to start a segment called Fox Tales where we want to share people's stories. So please do use that number to tell us your stories that, that for us to look into. We might reach out to you and get your full story and feature you in an upcoming episode. So we'll look forward to those. Also, this episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha, and we are so grateful for their work. And we thank you for listening. And as always, Stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. 
Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.